Today, we start this edition of The Chiefs on a more personal note. In 1994, during my time as a correspondent in Afghanistan, I was caught in a rather tricky situation when our vehicle was ambushed. I, along with a colleague, were both shot and required immediate evacuation from Afghanistan. Thankfully, a white Toyota truck bearing a red cross and a team of respondents calmly and effectively negotiated our way to safety. The organization responsible, the International Committee of the Red Cross, arguably saved my life and remains a tour de force in providing aid and humanitarian assistance in over 90 countries worldwide, undeterred by the global pandemic. Leading the charge as president is Peter Maurer, who joins me for this episode from his home office in the unofficial capital of multilateralism, Geneva. After a long stint at the Swiss Department of Foreign Affairs and a crucial role in the integration of the Swiss delegation into the UN system and other multilateral networks, Maurer took over the presidency of the ICRC in 2012. In our conversation today, we discuss everything from how to refresh the ICRC's funding model to the ins and outs of maintaining a brand on the front lines from Aleppo to the Sahel. Plus, we home in on the challenges of modern diplomacy. As the old model is ripped up, do the ICRC's nearly 3,000 frontline operatives and impressive local networks prove a new form of humanitarian diplomacy is possible? I'm Tyler Brule, and this is the Chief's edition of The Big Interview on Monocle 24. Mr. Maurer, thank you very much for joining us. Maybe we should kick off with a bit of a, a refresher course for our listeners, because no matter what corner of the world you're in, people come across the Red Cross. Uh, sometimes it's also misused as well in, in, in some circumstances. But when you look at all of the different organizations that exist under a Red Cross umbrella, is it possible to somehow paint our listeners maybe a bit of an organogram of how the ICRC functions, and then also how, of course, the, the Red Cross brand spills out globally. We have in the world, almost in each and every country, a Red Cross or Red Crescent society that brings the number to over 190. And these Red Cross and Red Crescent societies are basically responding to social challenges within the countries while the Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent, which is the organization in which all the national societies are united, is trying to respond to big international crises, in particular with regard to natural disaster. While the ICRC was founded as a Swiss organization, it is part of the Red Cross and Red Crescent family but is an independent organization with a focus on responding to situations of violence and war. So we have operations in more than 80 countries of the world. The Red Cross family comprises different components, but we are bound together by the principles of the Red Cross, neutrality, impartiality, independence, uh, working in partnership with each other. We are brought together by institutions by the regular international conferences in which we meet, but we are independent organization. As we you can easily see in today's world, there is not just a humanitarian natural disaster crisis and the war crisis. These crises fall together. Uh, pandemics come into play in the midst of war as well as in the midst of natural disaster. And this leads to an increasingly close cooperation within what we call the movement of Red Cross and Red Crescent societies. 
It sounds like there's also a lot of brand management still that needs to be done, Mr. Maurer, as well, of course, to keep all of these pieces in play. Because oftentimes, when we probably mostly look at our screens, we see vehicles with the ICRC band uh, around uh, the Red Cross. And as you say, we see these vehicles primarily in, in zones of conflict. Of course, there might be other elements of relief. Does it matter? Is there, in a way, a friction as well amongst the organization of who's doing what, who's delivering what? Uh, or is there quite, I would say, a, a joined up mission in terms of, of your deployments and what has to be done and delivered? Well, there is a good overall understanding, which doesn't mean that we don't have frictions in terms of who does what in any specific circumstance. There are conflict regions, parts of the globe where things are clearer than others. And of course, you mentioned brand management. That's a big challenge because organizationally, each and every part of the 195 parts of the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement has its own governance and responsibilities. While, as you rightly say, the brand is a global brand. And so in terms of responsibility for the brand, that's a collective responsibility. In terms of individual governance, it's split into 195 parts. I would lie if I wouldn't recognize that this creates sometimes tensions because the bad management in one or the other part or the violation of principles of neutrality and impartiality in one part of the movement may easily spill over into other parts of the movement and cause discomfort. And that's the reason why one of the big issues today is also not only to know who does what and to have a clear understanding on the roles and responsibilities, but also to have a sharper understanding on what are minimal conditions for integrity. I, I didn't want to go down the path of brand management, but it, it does raise a question, and I'm sure many of our listeners are thinking of this now. Is there any type of measurement that is done in terms of people's recognition of a Red Cross or a Red Crescent, in particular, obviously, in zones of conflict as well? Is there a body of work that is done that, of course, no matter what, what side of the trenches people might be on, they understand the meaning of this red symbol on a, on a white backdrop, particularly if we're talking about uh, war zones, uh, no matter where they may be in the world? The best measurement at the end of the day is our ability to operate safely uh, in those war zones. If we have the license to operate from all sides in a conflict region, that's probably the best recognition of the brand as such, and is probably the best recognition for our colleagues who have done a great job in explaining what we are doing in being transparent with regard to what we are doing on both sides or on all sides of a conflict. We have most of the time more sides in today's conflicts. And so the, the best measurement is at the end of the day to be uh, radically non-political, which means to base a humanitarian action on objective needs of people, and then also to explain to all sides how we operate and to actually do what we say and to say what we do. These are important guidelines to ensure that we can operate safely. And I think despite all the difficulties and despite the challenges to the security of humanitarian workers, I wanted to recognize that 
within the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement, we have still uh, relatively few incidents in which Red Cross and Red Crescent workers are victims. Which begs the question, uh, if, if you could almost create a pie chart, what percentage uh, of, when you look at the, the ICRC staff numbers, would be dedicated to diplomats almost in the, in the classic sense, so that, of course, people who are going into zones of conflict, who are negotiating, who are, of course, putting across the points uh, of all of the humanitarian needs to, of course, various factions that you have to deal with, what percentage are diplomats in, in the classic sense that we, un- we would understand them? We are roughly 20,000 staff at the ICRC today in roughly 86 countries. Out of the 20,000 staff, two and a half thousand are so-called mobiles. They have a characteristic lives in which they move from one conflict region to another. They are basically under mobility instruction. They go where needs is. And they are managers in an organization. They are trained to negotiate at front lines. They are trained to negotiate access to populations. They are trained to negotiate with prison directors' accesses to prison and moduses operandi in prison. So that's what humanitarian diplomacy today is and compares then to maybe some some 17,000 who are local employees, who I would say to a certain percentage as well are frontline workers. And so I would consider the number almost 20 to 25% of us who have very substantive and not just logistical work in terms of assisting and protecting people, understanding contexts, uh, negotiating at frontline. So it's more than just the mobiles who are in character doing diplomatic work. Also, many of the locals today looking at uh, some subdelegations of ICRC have increasing responsibilities to be frontline diplomats, frontline negotiators. If we look, though, at those who are active in the big diplomatic centers in in capitals of big world powers, that's a, a very small number. Some of those places where big international and multilateral institutions have their headquarters and where we are present to actually also defend and advocate for humanitarian issues and to generate understandings for the complexity of today's frontlines. If I rewind for a moment, I was in Afghanistan in 1994 and had the very good fortune of being looked after by an ICRC team. We were not with one of your delegations, but we were, I would certainly say, saved by one of your delegations. And if I go back to Brand, it, it was quite extraordinary to watch. And if you think of Kabul in, in 1994, it was a variety of factions fighting for control. It was pre-Taliban, it was post-Russia, a bit of a forgotten war at the time. And And you were one of the only organizations that were there at the time in the middle of a of what had become also a very ugly conflict. But it was remarkable to see the, the power and the understanding of the brand, the presence that the brand had. And we had an incident where we were pulled over in your vehicles uh, on the way out of Afghanistan. And to watch the, the power of, 
of negotiation. Of course, this faction wanted drugs out of the vehicles, and it went on for probably an hour roadside. No, no drugs were removed, nothing was given over, and we were able to go on our way. So when you talk about mobiles, those would be some of those individuals you're talking about, I would assume. Yeah, that's exactly the case. And I think that what you describe today is still very much a reality, although these realities in today's conflicts are slightly more complex in a sense that you see an increasing number of conflicts with more destructured groups and armed groupings, which make negotiations and frontline negotiations a more complex enterprise to look at. It's not just the Taliban and the government, as you have experienced it in Afghanistan. It's numbers of groupings and groups which today we are looking at and which are important to consult, to be in touch with, and to negotiate what I would call consensual humanitarianism. Because at the end of the day, acceptance and brand respect comes from this strong imperative that we are working by the consensus of those who control territories and populations. And we try to bring them together to minimal understanding of international humanitarian laws and principles. And so that's today, I would say, exactly still the same situation, although slightly more complex in contexts, for instance, like Syria or the Sahel or Somalia, where the fragmentation of groups today offers some additional challenges. Uh, Mr. Maurer, we often hear diplomats, we hear people certainly from private sector, they talk about a crisis in diplomacy, and we can go back and talk to whether that's classic, modern, but diplomacy, again, um, as, as we recognize it today, do you see that as an issue as well? And, and I perhaps want to sort of certainly shine a light on, on the power of the private sector, that there are many attractive places that you can go, there are many upstanding businesses, for-profit businesses, uh, which are trying to do good in the world. And would you agree that there is a crisis right now when you look at the foreign ministries of, of other governments, and, and we don't have to name them, and maybe the, the step back from all of that, is diplomacy still an interesting profession for people when course, many are motivated by money. You can still have an international lifestyle, maybe a much more exciting international lifestyle. You're working for a for-profit organization. Uh, and, and does that cause a recruiting problem? And of course, if there's a recruiting problem, does that, does that cause a problem further up the chain to have, as you said, to over 2,000 people who are mobiles? Or is there an endless stream of, of very good CVs uh, that are out there for the ICRC? I do believe that uh, whether you call it a crisis of diplomacy or whether you call it, as I would frame it, rather uh, a stark underinvestment of diplomacies of countries into finding solutions to some of the intractable problems, I would agree with you that at the present moment, neither bilateral diplomacy of states nor multilateral institutions are well positioned obviously, to find at least acceptable approaches, if not solutions, to some of the problems. How could you otherwise explain that we are accumulating regions of conflict and disasters for people over years and decades, which remain unresolved? That's obviously pointing 
to a difficult standing of diplomacy as a profession, as diplomacy as an instrument of states, and it points certainly to some of the flaws uh, in the present uh, in the present international system. And I would say to the opposite that this makes this profession still necessary and important and interesting. And that's one of the reasons why we really don't have a recruitment problem at the ICRC for a couple of hundred mobiles, which we recruit each and every year. We have still in the 16 to 18,000 applications worldwide, which allows for a stringent selection. And so there is obviously a generation which is interested to not necessarily to look at maximum profit and salary, but rather to look at impact and relevance. And And I think we have not too difficult a task to recruit who comes into the institution. So I would agree with your first assumption that we do have a serious problem, that the skyrocketing budgets of humanitarian organizations point to the fact conflicts are not resolved and uh, very often papered over and band-aided over by humanitarian assistance, and we would be the first ones to recognize that we need more diplomacy and not less and better international institution and not less. What you also point to is, and I would fully agree, that we can't have these institutions just as institutions among states. The civil society, the business communities, they are important actors in today's world. They have at least part of the solutions. And I have always advocated for more multi-stakeholder approaches, including societies at large and the private sector as well, into the resolution of some of the intractable problems with which we are dealing. And when you point to the private sector, and, and of course, we know that, that funding for, for certain organizations, one organization uh, very much involved in the pandemic and probably has been in the news more uh, than, than any other organization, that be the WHO. When it comes to funding, what does the funding model look like for the ICRC? On one side, of course, from generous states, one would assume, and then obviously from private sector, what are the parameters of it? And I guess also, I guess the ethics and the, the really barriers uh, to entry around that as well. Well, on the one side, we are still to a large extent funded by states. 90% of our budget is states who offer through voluntary contributions to the ICRC our budget and less than 10% is coming from the private sector. Uh, This is still a seizable amount of money given a $2 billion budget. But with regard to the ethics, I would say what is it? of critical importance to us is our ability to spend money according to principles of neutrality and impartiality and based on needs of people and not on political orientation. And so it's less the origin of money, which is the key ethical concern to me, but rather the conditions under which money is coming to our organization. And I think this is today one of the critical issues because States very often link their contribution or want to link their contribution to specific political objectives. Private sector companies would like to link them 
to uh, some achievements and interest also for the private sector. And I think this is a careful navigation we have to do in order to have solid internal procedures, which allows us to direct funding towards uh, those who need it most and who are most in needs in terms of objective needs assessment. And I think that's the big challenge today in a world in which state and private business look first and foremost at sometimes narrow definitions of interest when they want to support even humanitarian work worldwide. And of course, we're living this moment very, it's very live as we do this. One of your neighbors, of course, the WHO is in the spotlight. On your watch, Mr. Maurer, you've seen the budget increase for the ICRC to a significant amount, which obviously meant, of course, that can only happen uh, with the cooperation, as you said, with mostly with state partners. Has it worried you, though, that somehow there might be some type of spillover knock-on effect that if people are questioning the WHO, then do they start to look at other organizations and NGOs, and not just the, of course, the ICRC, but of course, those within the broader Red Cross organization globally? Has that been a concern, again, as you said, going back to people only observing returns based on very narrow interests? Or do you think you can steady the course? Well, we hope to steady the course. I think conceptually, WHO and ICRC, if we just take those two organizations, are very much complementary. WHO is a state-governed institution with state membership and with clearly a task to work with state and state institutions, which, uh, of course, uh, is, is an important objective, but also limits very much their ability to operate within the consensus of the community of states. I think ICRC is much more oriented to support people and communities affected by war, violence, pandemics in, uh, in the recent month and to operational delivery in the field. And so these, these concepts, if well explained and well understood, I think can both generate interest and support. And for the time being, I'm pretty optimistic that we can still keep the course and explain why it is so important that national societies of the Red Cross and Red Crescent, the ICRC as a frontline operator, are well-funded in order to deliver on the ground, and this should not inhibit uh, states also to support more policy-oriented organizations. I would be the first one to recognize that we are not operating in a void and that sound health policies are as important as deliveries on the ground, but it's two distinct functions for which I think both organizations would hope to get support and interest from the international community. I'm more worried to see the knock-on effect of COVID-19 towards global economic downturn, which of course can over time affect also humanitarian budgets of the one and the other organizations. And you just talked about delivery on the ground. What have the past few months looked like in Geneva, of course, at all of your outposts around the world? Was there a level of preparedness for something like this? And of course, many would hope so. And we've heard many organizations around the world saying, yes, they were prepared, they were on the back foot. But was there a playbook on the part of the ICRC to deal with something at this level, knowing, of course, that you're also 
mostly day in and day out, of, involved in areas of, of course, conflict rather than mass disasters. Well, look, I think it has played out well in a sense that it is not the first pandemic that we are dealing with. We have seen Ebola hitting fragile contexts and contexts of war and violence. We have seen other pandemics affecting countries. And so there is a track record of responding and there are lessons learned on how to respond to a pandemic. But honestly, in terms of global reach, global impact, secondary impact of the pandemic on the economic development of so many states, in terms of supply chain disruption, in terms of also insecurity with regard to the non-linear development of the virus, all these have made this a very special situation for which we may have been prepared to a certain extent, but certainly not to the dimensions with which we were confronted. The last couple of months has also been a powerful accelerator for some of the developments we have witnessed in the past, the digitalization of humanitarian work has progressed fast. I mean, we couldn't move anymore, so we had to organize humanitarian work much more in the digital space. I think the localization of humanitarian work has progressed rapidly. We couldn't just overmanage and manage from a central headquarter everything, so we had much more to trust local operators to do the right things and local colleagues to do the right things. And I think the last couple of months in terms of size and impact have reminded us that nobody can do it alone. And it has shaped partnerships, which we haven't maybe chartered beforehand in such a solid and profound way. So it has changed the way we deliver humanitarian services. And I would suspect that we are not going back to pre-COVID-19 humanitarianism. We are moving forward and the question will be, what is the balance between physical presence, international presence and local national presence in certain contexts? What is the role of physical and digital? How can we work together in different spaces? And as you rightly said, if this has not been the key competence of dealing with violence, we nevertheless see that in most of the context in which we operate, COVID-19 comes on top of a lot of challenges which we have witnessed over the last decades and which just gives another angle to complexity with which we are dealing. And, and I have no doubt that we try hard to be responsive. I mean, if I look at the results after Three and a half months of lockdown, we have maintained an operational delivery at 85% of what we have planned. More than 95% of our staff is still in areas of operation and working either physically or digitally. All our people are still there. I think that's the encouraging sign also of the last couple of months. And last question, just before we go, Mr. Maurer, if you sit in front of your television screens, in front of your phone elsewhere, perhaps you want to raise awareness about conflicts and zones of the world that have really sadly dropped away from our screens. It doesn't matter whether it's the NZZ or the New York Times, the stories, and certainly on the major broadcasters, is not really there. And if you look at, of course, where you are in theaters of operation, where are zones of, of most concern for you right now? 
it's almost an endless list. But of course, the Middle East remains a big area of concern. Yemen, Iraq and Syria are together some of probably 25, 27% of everything we do in the world. And so are very big operations. The Sahel, the Lake Chad and the Horn of Africa for me is this band of instability through Africa from east to west, which is almost absent of any communication and therefore is an area of concern. I'm concerned that we have seen, if you look, for instance, at Libya or Myanmar, we have seen fighting going on over the last three and a half months without almost any publicity around and any recognition for the suffering it inflicts on people. On the other hand, I think we have worked a lot on the ground and in, in chancelleries of states who support us, we still manage to explain that these wars are going on, that financial needs are going on. And even if this is not in each and every day's headlines, we are still delivering and still addressing those problems in addition to preparedness and prevention measures that we undertake under COVID-19. My thanks to Peter Maurer, the president of the International Committee of the Red Cross, for joining us for this week's edition of The Chiefs. The Chiefs, part of Monocle's big interview series, was produced by Paige Reynolds and edited by Steph Chungu. I'm Tyler Brulé in Zurich. Thanks very much for listening.